some uh, portions of God's word uh, can be uh, preached with great delight. Uh, This is not one of them. The mere reading of scripture like this uh, causes us to, to shudder. There is, however, a comforting and consoling note for Christians, namely, uh, Christians should not expect to go through these judgments when they are poured out upon the earth. Um, Our life is hid with Christ in God and uh, we are are removed from the scene way before this happens. Uh, But why are the judgments here so severe? Well, there must come a time when judgment can no longer be delayed. The first commandment that God gave through Moses was very clear. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And the second commandment is a detailed warning against fashioning any image or bowing down to any image upon pain of divine Visitation in judgment. Here are God's own words. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the sea. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. And the vision that John sees here in Revelation chapter 16 is that visitation of judgment that God predicted back in Exodus. Satan's desire for worship has been satisfied in the tribulation period by men worshipping the image of the beast. But God will never allow his glory to be given to another. When men turn from God completely, giving themselves over to the worship of Satan... God steps in to vindicate his sovereignty and his righteousness and his holiness. And the pouring out of these seven bowls of God's wrath is that vindication. You'll notice that through the chapter, the word that is used is the word vile, V-I-A-L, not V-I-L-E, V-I-A-L. Today, the English word vile means a small container, typically typically cylindrical, usually made of glass and especially used for holding liquid medicines. And that's certainly not the concept here. Certainly not medicine, certainly not small cylindrical. The Greek word translated vile refers to a broad, shallow cup. Something like we describe by the word bowl is probably the more accurate way to, for us to understand it. And so that's, uh, we'll probably be deferring to that word this evening. Now, as, as we have progressed through the book of Revelation, we've seen that God's judgment is being poured out, first of all, through seven seals. Seven seals are open, seven judgments are contained in each of those seals. Each one's open, a judgment comes out. That's followed by seven trumpets, seven trumpet sounds. Each trumpet sounds another aspect of the judgment of God. And now seven bowls. The diagram on the back of your sheet show how they relate to each other. So the seven seals. And out of the seventh one, 
Then come seven trumpets, each one of them a judgment. And then at the seventh trumpet, there are the seven bowls that are poured out. For our purposes tonight, we have four main headings there on the outline sheet. The first point covers the first 12 verses in which we see the pouring out of the bowls of judgment. In Revelation 15, we begin at verse 5, but in Revelation 15, John was given a detailed introduction to these bold judgments. In chapter 15, he saw seven angels proceeding from God's heavenly temple and seven bowls in their hand, ready to pour out God's wrath upon the earth. And as chapter 16 opens, John's attention is still fixed on the heavenly scene. John says, I heard a great voice out of the temple saying to the seven angels, go your ways and pour out the vials or the, the, the bowls of the wrath of God upon the earth. The time, the hour for judgment can be delayed no longer. From the smoke-filled temple, there comes this great voice commanding the seven angels to proceed to execute the judgments. Now the adjective great appears something like ten times in this one chapter. And whatever great things men have accomplished on the earth previously, all of those things together are very little compared to the greatness of the coming judgments of the wrath of God poured out upon the earth. Keep in mind the fact that these judgments are future and they are literal. The bowls of judgments were not fulfilled in the French Revolution or the oppression of Napoleon or the, or the persecutions and the pressures of popery or the machinations of Hitler and his slaughter of six million Jews. Those events in history and all events like them were mere rehearsals for the great final drama of the last judgments upon the earth. The first bowl, verses 1 and 2. And the first angel went, poured out his vial upon the earth, and there fell a noisome and grievous sore upon men that had the mark of the beast and upon them that worshipped his image. Notice that the first judgment is directed at the worshippers of the beast. And notice that it's particularly aimed at idolatry. The idolatrous worshippers of the beast are afflicted with a physical malady, a noisome and grievous sore, literally foul and evil sore, possibly plague of boils or malignant tumours. You might remember back to Deuteronomy chapter 28, where God gave Israel a very solemn warning that such plagues would come forth if people violated his laws. And the people knew that God meant exactly what he said because he did send a plague among the, the people when they worshipped the golden calf that Aaron had made. And the same kind of judgment came upon Egypt in the sixth plague in Exodus 9. And a similar plague fell upon Miriam for a time. But in the, the tribulation, uh, in the tribulation period, many people will worship the beast 
And they are called into account for their idolatry. The first plague is described as painfully bad. It will fall upon all who have the mark of the beast on them. The true Messiah. With him, diseases were healed. But under the false Messiah, the Antichrist, such afflictions cannot be prevented, nor can they be cured. As a matter of fact, they're actually caused by worshipping the Antichrist and taking his mark. John Phillips suggests that this sore may be directly related to the mark of the beast that they receive on their right hand or on their foreheads. Oh, there on the right hand, a horrible, putrefying, incurable cancer. There on the face, a loathsome, ugly, disfiguring, agonizing blotch. It's horrible to consider. Almost the entire population of the world suffering from a painful malady that no one can cure. And we know that constant pain does affect a person's disposition. It makes us difficult to live with. And certainly human relationships during that period will be at their worst. Added to that, added to that, there's a second bowl of judgment poured out, verse 3. The second angel poured out his vial upon the sea. And it became as the blood of a dead man, and every living soul died in the sea. Back in chapter 6, with the breaking of the second seal judgment, there was human blood shed upon the earth. In chapter 8, the sounding of the second trumpet, a third part of the sea became as blood. Now here, the second bold judgment seems like all the oceans are affected. All the oceans are affected. The oceans occupy 70% of the earth's surface. And they will become a pool of death, a toxic wasteland of water. In Exodus 7, the plague on the Egyptian waters, when God turned the waters into blood, that was literally fulfilled. That was literal. Even as this plague here will be literal in the latter days preceding the return of the Lord Jesus Christ to earth. Now, I'm not certain if the waters become literally blood because the text says they became as the blood of a dead man. But we can be sure it will be a literal plague that will take place upon the literal waters, the oceans of the earth. They will be turned into thick, coagulated mass, producing a putrefying stench like that of a decaying corpse. The condition will cause unimaginable disease and death. And added to that, on top of that, the third bold judgment is then poured out. Verse 4, And the third angel poured out his vial upon the waters, the rivers and the fountains of waters. And they became as blood, and heard the angel of the waters say, Thou art righteous, O Lord, which art and wast and shalt be, because thou hast judged thus. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and thou hast given them blood to drink, for they are worthy. And heard another out of the altar say, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are thy judgments. The third angel extends this blood-themed judgment to the fresh waters. Freshwater rivers and lakes as well as the springs, the fountains that feed them. 
But when the angel vindicates, the angel having then done that, he then vindicates God's judgment as just. Notice he says, Thou art righteous, O Lord, because thou hast thus judged. And then to the testimony of that angel is added another voice which is heard out of the altar in heaven. True and righteous are thy judgments, the voice proclaimed about the Lord God Almighty. I dare say that some people when they read this chapter or maybe anyone even hearing this message feel that God is quite unjust in meeting out such horrible judgments upon people of the earth. But we only think that way because we don't have perfect knowledge and we're not perfectly righteous. But God is both omniscient and perfectly righteous. The judge of all the earth shall do right. And heaven itself gives justification for this terrible judgment. That is, the earth dwellers have shed the blood of God's people. That's what it says there. They've shed the blood of the saints and the prophets. So therefore, it is only right and just. They should receive corresponding judgment. In God's government, the punishment fits the crime. Pharaoh tried to drown the Jewish baby boys. In God's economy, the, fair, the, uh, the judgment fits the crime because it was Pharaoh himself and his armies that were drowned in the sea. Haman planned to hang Mordecai on the gallows to, and then to exterminate the Jewish people, but then himself he himself was hanged on the gallows and his family was exterminated. King Saul refused to obey God's command to, concerning the Amalekites. And in the end, it was an Amalekite that ended up taking Saul's life. In God's government, you reap what you sow. And the angel's voice and the voice from the temple are both right in eternity. That is, in the life to come, the righteous judgments of God will never be brought into question. Both heaven and in hell, men will acknowledge the righteousness of of the eternal God who has so judged. The fourth bowl is poured out in verses 8 and 9. The fourth angel poured out his vial upon the sun. And power was given to him to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with great heat and blasphemed the name of God, which had power over these plagues. And they repented not to give him glory. This judgment, like the fourth trumpet, involves the sun. Think back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 16, where the greater of the lights was created by God to give and to rule the day for the blessing of man. And for thousands of years, God has made the sun to rise on the evil as well as on the good. But in the great tribulation, things will change. Whatever things operate in the, in the, cos, the cosmos, it will change in the tribulation period. When the fourth trumpet sounded, a third of the sun was darkened. And yet here and now, the sun's intensity will be supernaturally increased by God. And it will shine with such an intensity that 
Many people will die from it. Searing heat, exceeding anything in human experience, will so scorch men, scorch them so severely, it will seem as if the atmosphere is on fire. Many people die because of it. And those who do not die because of it are made to suffer more because there's not only that, but there's also still their bodily sores. There's also still the awful stench arising from the polluted rivers and lakes. And you would think, you would think that after a series of four consecutive judgments that would bring humanity to their knees, you'd think that their hearts would melt. You'd expect the very next verse in Scripture to tell us how people would fall on their knees and lift their hands up to God, pleading for mercy. Surely a loving God. Hearing the cries of such people, even at such a moment like this, would turn away from his wrath, even at this late state. In fact, the prophet Joel speaks very, very pointedly to this aspect of the Lord's character, even at the point of total judgment that he spoke about in his day. Joel chapter 2, verse 12. Even at the final hour, therefore also now, saith the Lord, turn ye unto me with all your heart, with fastings and with weeping and with mourning, and rend your heart and not your garments, and turn unto the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and repenteth him of the evil. And who, will, who knows if he will rep- turn and repent and leave a blessing behind him? Even at the final hour, there still was the call going out to repent. All, all this bringing people to repentance, if they repent, if they turn to him, who will know if the Lord might, might best be gracious and merciful? Such is his nature. And yet here, instead of humble repentance, we see nothing but increased hardness. In response to the judgment, the worshippers of Satan will, what's it say, verse 9, blaspheme the name of God. They fail to repent. They refuse to give God the glory. Think about this. Everyone who is so afflicted by these plagues in that day, will have had access to the same predictions that you and I are reading about now. They would have had several years of successive warnings, prophecy being fulfilled, prophecy being fulfilled, prophecy all round about them, all building up to this, getting worse and worse, cumulatively getting worse and worse. They would have had a number of years, and the scriptures before them, even as we do tonight, warnings in the scriptures, letting them know what's exactly what's coming. And yet they still refuse to repent. They still curse their creator. They still rage at their redeemer. They've made their decision. Their will is fixed. And it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God for judgment. One comforting prospect in all of this is that the tribulation saints will not be affected by this heat. Revelation 7.16 says, They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun light on them, nor any heat. God looks after his own. The fifth bowl is spoken about in verses 10 and 11. The fifth angel poured out his vial upon the seat of the beast, and his kingdom was full of darkness. And they gnawed their tongues for pain and blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and repented not of their deeds. 
The first four bowls have been directed specifically against the natural realm, the earth first, then the sea, the waters and the sun. We might call them natural disasters, although they have a supernatural cause. However, the fifth and the sixth bowl judgments are more thoroughly supernatural, targeting the political realm, the kingdom of the beast and the kingdoms of the world. John tells us he saw the fifth angel pull out his bowl upon the seat of the beast. The word for seat there is the Greek word thronos, the word throne. On the throne of the beast. And there are two results that follow. First of all, they are shrouded in darkness that descends upon the beast's entire kingdom. And also the people are consumed by excruciating pain. The term throne in the Bible signifies not a piece of furniture, but the seat of the ruler's authority. In the tribulation, this throne specifically refers to the stronghold of the Antichrist political power, but it also includes his entire kingdom. His kingdom, his kingdom is plunged into incredible darkness, reminiscent of the plague upon Egypt, when when the darkness was so great, it says it could be felt for three days. People couldn't see anything. It was so oppressive. Similar thing here. Revelation 16.11 reminds us that the afflictions suffered by the enemies of God are cumulative. The sores brought on by the first bold judgment continue to fester as the darkness encloses them around. The water that could have soothed their sun-scorched flesh stands in stinking stagnant pools, once clean water, now polluted. Nevertheless, believe it or not, people still continue to blaspheme God. People still refuse to repent. As a matter of fact, in the book of Revelation, this is the final expression of people's unwillingness to repent. They're never given another opportunity beyond this. Up until now, God's looking for that. He's hoping for that. But with the offer of the, with the, with the fifth plague, here is God's final offer. Here is God's final invitation for repentance. doesn't come anymore after this. The bowls of wrath here reveal that people's minds are made up, their hearts are made up, their wills are resolute. They're sealed in their sinful condition. It's become like the days of Noah. God saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth. Every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And even then, as it is here, time has come to wipe the earth clean. Six bowl, verse 12. And the angel poured out his vial upon the great river Euphrates. And the water thereof was dried up, and the, that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. The outpouring of the sixth bowl of wrath here resembles closely the sixth trumpet judgment back in chapter 9. Both of them have to do with the Euphrates River. The Euphrates River has been an integral part of world affairs since creation. It was one of the four rivers that irrigated the Garden of Eden before the fall. It actually formed the northeastern boundary of the land that God promised to Abraham. 
and his descendants back in Genesis 15. The Hebrew people simply called it the river or the great river. The river is called great because of its significant location. It's the longest river in Western Asia, flowing almost 1,800 miles from Syria to Babylon and into the Persian Gulf. The Greek name Euphrates means sweet water. However, at this time in the tribulation, Peter, in the tribulation period, the waters of the Euphrates River, like the waters of every other river, was now corrupt and embittered with the judgment of God. But now they dry up completely. What's to say? Making the way for the kings of the east to cross over. God dried up the Red Sea for Israel, allowed them to cross over. Forty years later, he dried up the Jordan River, again allowing Israel to cross over. And if the Euphrates River forms a natural barrier against invading armies, then it's going to be a very simple matter for God to remove that barrier. On the back of your outline sheet, you've got a map there. And uh, you'll be able to see the Euphrates River there. And the way is open for the kings of the east to come. When the Euphrates River was mentioned earlier in Revelation, when the sixth trumpet sounded, Revelation 9 verse 13 tells us that four demonic spirits were loosed that had been bound there previously and... An army of demonic horsemen were also released. And now we see more demonic activity described in verses 13 and 14 where we see the purpose of the bowl judgments. Verse 13, And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet For they are the spirits of devils working miracles which go forth under the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Now at first glance it seems that these verses might be part of the sixth bowl judgment. However, what we see here is the action of the trinity of evil. The dragon, the beast and the false prophet And their action here discloses, at least in part, what is the purpose behind these bold judgments. Here we see this trinity of evil. They are persuading the kings of the earth to join forces in battle against Israel and against the Lord. And part of their activity will be this revival of demonic activity. Unclean spirits, they're said to be like frogs, with an unclean animal according to the book of Leviticus. And demonic power is unleashed. They can do great signs and miracles to deceive the nations of the earth. And they will draw the nations of the earth towards the land of Israel for the purpose of, the book of Revelation tells us the rest of it, an all-out global war. A war that will include the kings of the earth and the whole world. A war against the Lord and his Anointed. This will be the great conflict, the final conflict called Armageddon, verse 16. The name Armageddon comes from two Hebrew words, Har Megiddo, the hill of Megiddo, 
The word Megiddo means place of troops or place of slaughter. It's also called the plain of Esdraelon or the valley of Jezreel. It's an area about 14 miles wide, 20 miles long, forms what Napoleon called, quote, the most natural battlefield of the whole earth. And standing on Mount Carmel overlooking the great plain, you can well understand why this place should be the gathering of the armies of the nations. Now, from a human point of view, it appears that the armies of the nations are just gathering of their own accord. But John makes it clear that the military movement is according to God's plan. For when the nations have assembled to fight against Israel, to fight against the Lord and his Christ, divine judgments will be perfected. The outcome of the battle is recorded in Revelation chapter 19. The Lord returns and defeats all his enemies. Therefore, verses 13 and 14 here disclose to us the purpose of these bold judgments, namely, it's building up to this, namely, to settle once and for all among every nation of the earth the absolute authority of Jesus Christ over the whole world. That's what this is all about. It is then, when all the nations converge on Israel, it is then that the seventh and final bowl is poured out, followed by the personal return of Christ. However, before the last judgment is poured out upon the nations, there's a solemn pause, and the Lord himself speaks. Number three, the pause before the last bowl, verse 15. Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. He reminds them that his coming is soon he reminds them that his coming is sudden notice he says i'll come as a thief showing us reminding us that the church will not be on earth at the time because the thessalonian christians were assured that the that day that they were taken out would not overtake them as a thief here the warning is given a final warning to the tribulation saints so the tribulation saints are to watch for his coming. Watch for his coming. Make sure they're not un to keep themselves unspotted from the defilements of the world at this time. The Satan-inspired activities of that day, they're warned. Don't be defiled by any of this. And yet even in the warning, there's a word of praise given to the faithful saints during the tribulation. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. This is the third of seven Beatitudes in the book of Revelation. It's also a warning for the saints living in the tribulation to stay alert, stay alert, especially in light of the imminent return of Christ. What garments is symbolic of the righteousness of the saints. And those who are walking in sin before God, or those who are walking in sin even before the world, are considered to be spiritually naked. Living a shameful life before God and before others. Believers must guard their lives from evil at all times. Clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Not just that one should imputed to us, but the righteousness of the saints. The good works that we do. The righteous way we're supposed to live. This is the warning to these people. 
Now concerning garments, Philip Morrow, the commentator, says, When about to go to sleep, one lays aside his garments, but when awake, he keeps them. Now if something suddenly happens, such as the arrival of the Lord, the one who is asleep does not readily get himself clothed. But he who is of a wakeful attitude is safe also in respect to his clothing. Stay awake, stay alert, be vigilant, live godly. And how gracious is the Lord to warn the believers of what lies ahead. And then finally in verses 17 to 21, finally we see the perfecting of the bowl judgments. The seventh bowl, verse 17. And he gathered them together into a place that is called in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon. And the seventh angel poured out his vial into the air. And there came a great voice out of the temple of heaven from the throne saying, It is done. And there were voices and thunders and lightnings and there was a great earthquake such as was not since when men were upon the earth. So mighty an earthquake and so great. It is done. Here's the perfecting of the judgment, the consummation of God's wrath, the final overthrow of all opposition. Once before the Lord Jesus uttered similar words from the cross. When he cried out, it is finished. And that time, at that time, there was an earthquake. Sorry. But then he was bearing the judgment for man's sin. However, next time, here, when he speaks about a finished work, it will be the consummation of judgment upon all men who have rejected him the comprehensive finality of judgment upon the earth and its inhabitants. Verse 18 tells us that at that time, final bowl judgment poured out, the earth will experience a convulsion of unprecedented magnitude. Never, ever, ever has the earth ever seen anything like this. Not in the days of Noah. Not like this. Voices, thunders, Lightning, earthquake, never ever an earthquake like this one, causing such damage and destruction and death and distress upon mankind. Verse 19, cities will be destroyed worldwide. The great cities divided into three parts. Cities of nations fell. Great Babylon drank of the cup of the fierceness of God's wrath. The destruction of Babylon is described chapter 17. We'll look at that next time. But the great city seemed to be a reference to Jerusalem. It's possible that the new areas of Jerusalem outside the old walls of Jerusalem will be divided when the Lord touches down the Mount of Olives. Zechariah 14 verse 4. And perhaps the old city will remain intact with the others divide. We'll have to wait and see. But people do stand in awe of what mankind can create and what mankind can construct. But one day it will all collapse. One day it will all crumble when God pours out his wrath upon the nations of the world. In verse 20, continents are severely changed by the earthquake. Every island fled away 
The mountains were not found. The earth's topography is radically altered by this earthquake. Causes massive flooding, great destruction. Verse 21, climactic changes will impact the earth. As there fell upon men a great hail out of heaven, every stone about the weight of a talent, approximately 100 pounds in weight. The heaviest hailstone on record in modern times was 1.93 pounds. The velocity of stones pummeling the earth will have a devastating impact upon whatever is not destroyed by the preceding judgments. And when you think about it, people who blaspheme God, God said under his law, should be, should be stoned. And here they are blaspheming God, their last breath, as these massive stones fall from heaven all round about them. And yet they will not repent. The opposite takes place. They continue to blaspheme the God because of the plague of hail. Now these descriptions of God's wrath being poured out upon the earth are quite terrifying. At the cross, God demonstrated his wrath and poured out his wrath upon his son. His great love for the world was then on full display. However, in the great tribulation, his wrath will be poured out not upon his son, but upon the rebellious, unrepentant sinners who refuse his son. And there'll be no middle ground on that day. There's no middle ground today, really. So, brethren, friends, what, what will you do? What will you do? What will you do? Will you believe on him or will you blaspheme him? Will you confess him or will you con- curse him? Will you repent or will you continue to rebel? The choice is yours. The choice is mine. And now's the time to make the choice because soon all of us will be gone. Judgment Day is on its way to planet Earth. And what was left of human civilization is shaken to its foundations, clearing the Earth for an extreme makeover. What Revelation is describing is nothing less than the end of the world as we know it. Everything about the earth, including its topography, will be prepared for a new regime. A thousand year reign of Jesus Christ upon the earth, followed by a new heaven and a new earth. I have to wait a couple of chapters to get to that. But as we zoom out... And take in the message of Revelation 16. We can rest assured that those who mistreat the innocent and choose evil over good will be brought to justice. The beast worshippers will commit themselves to his wicked regime and save their own lives, so it would seem, for a number of years. And it looks like they're getting away with things, you know, persecuting, murdering God's people. But Revelation chapter 16 reminds us that God's judgment is inescapable. And the same is true today. It may appear to us that the wicked people get off scot-free often, but one day there is coming 
a day of reckoning. God has made it clear that the present world system, which seems to most often reward evil and punish good, that system will come to a tragic end. The images of Revelation 16 can be distilled into two key truths to remember, and that will help us navigate the injustices of the present world system. Two things to take away tonight. Number one, justice in this world will always appear distorted. Justice in this world will always appear distorted. The psalmist lamented, Psalm 73 verse 12, Behold, these are the ungodly who prosper in the world. They increase in riches. Verily, I've cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocency. For all day long have I been plagued and chastened every morning. He's saying, the wicked people do wicked things and they prosper. And here I am trying to do the right thing. And man, it just goes worse from bad to worse for me. They're not plagued, I am. So it seemed to the psalmist and so it often seems to us, it seems that we get the the wrong end of things. You work hard at school. Do the right thing. Slog away. Study as best you can. You get a hard-earned B+. Plus, but then someone else that you know at school cheats and takes shortcuts and gets an A+. An a plus. Your sinful co-worker gets promoted at work because of their flattery and their slander and stabbing people in the back. But you follow the rules. You don't get a promotion. Maybe you, you don't even keep, keep your job. You maintain your car insurance, but someone else without insurance hits you and you end up with a bill. What are your experiences of the unfairness of life? How have you expressed your frustrations about the injustices that are inherent in the fallen world system? Do the words of the psalmist resonate with you? Justice in this world will always appear to be distorted. But here's the second thing to take away this evening. Escaping the reality of God's judgment is impossible. Escaping the reality of God's judgment is impossible. The same psalmist coming to his senses and looking at the world from the divine perspective rather than just a human perspective, he continues verse 16. He says, When I thought to know this, it was too painful to me. The prosperity of the wicked, the hard time that Christian people have, I think about it's just too hard to think about, verse 17, until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their end. Surely thou didst set them in slippery places, thou castest them down into destruction. How are they brought into desolation? As in a moment, they're utterly consumed with terrors. Just as God will hold the tribulation rebels accountable for their wickedness, God will hold every person accountable for his or her own life. It's impossible to escape the judgment of God. Brethren, reminding ourselves of this fact... I think, I hope, will help us to come to terms with the what is often the brutality of the present world and the injustice that seems to reign. But one day the tables will be turned 
and justice will be served and reminding ourselves that the injustices of this world will one day be undone has tremendous benefits for us if we can keep our minds stayed thus. The unfairness that we endure for righteousness' sake can suddenly feel worth it all if we bear this in mind, that one day God will set everything right. God is keeping score. God's keeping account. No one else sees what we do, but God's taking notice. This kind of theology is quite therapeutic. It can ease our anger. It can help us with our frustration, even stop us going and getting too depressed. Our striving against sin doesn't go unnoticed by God. Nor will the indulgence of sin go unpunished. Two verses to take home this evening. Two verses I leave with you. One from the book of First Peter, the other from the book of Hebrews. First Peter 4 verse 19. Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. First Peter 4 verse 19. And then Hebrews chapter 10 verse 23. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith. Without wavering, for he is faithful, that promised. Hebrews 10.23. He is faithful, that promise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are faithful concerning your promises. You have promised to judge all sin. And you will keep that promise. Uh, we see it in the book of Revelation coming to a incredible climax, uh, building up to and resulting in the, the uh, battle of Armageddon, where the nations of the world are arrayed against you and you exert your authority over them. Thank you that when you return, you will then set up your perfect rule upon the earth, ruling and reigning in righteousness. What a glorious time that will be for the world. We uh, look forward to that day. But thank you, Lord, Lord, you also keep your promises uh, concerning us. Thank you, you promise to protect us and preserve us. You promise to give us grace that we need. You promise to use all things together for good to those that love you. You've promised that the, the trial of our faith is indeed a precious thing and can produce beneficial things in our lives. Lord, thank you for your exceeding great and precious promises. Thank you that you're faithful to keep your words. And we pray, Lord, you'd help us to be faithful. Lord, sometimes we do face challenges, um, not just in ministry but at home, certainly in the workplace, maybe in the the neighbourhood, maybe within our own families. Lord, thank you that you see all things, you know all things. And we pray, Lord, that you'd help us 
and to keep doing right. Even if it doesn't seem to work, even if it doesn't seem to pay. Lord, help us to have the divine perspective. Help us to think on things above, not on things on the earth. Well, thank you for your word and thank you for helping us. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.